Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. And today I am super stoked to have on the show a woman who has already made two appearances as a guest in the roundtable discussions. She's on as an individual self-defense coach today, and I can't wait to dig into her story. And I know you're going to absolutely love what she has to say. Lisa Abbott started in the martial arts in 1982 in a traditional system that was rooted in Kyokushin. The dojo that she trained in was in a nearby town, sort of nearby. I guess nearby is a relative because it was a 100-mile round trip that she did when she went to train. As a brown belt, she was encouraged to open up a branch of that school, and so she did, and she and her husband built a school on their property in 1990. After 20 years with that school, she left the traditional program realizing that it was incomplete as far as self-defense is concerned, and in particular, when thinking about self-defense for women. And she began searching for somebody to learn from. She received a first self-defense instructor certification from Phil Messina of Modern Warrior Defensive Tactics in Long Island, New York. He recommended books by Rory Miller, And after reading Meditations on Violence, she started training with Rory in 2010. Since then, she has started teaching self-defense seminars, and she does that while still working full-time in the public school system. She lives in rural northeastern Nevada, is married, and has two grown sons and a grandson. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Hi, Cynthia. It's great to be here. Well, I am so glad to have you on as a solo guest this time because we've done two roundtable discussions with you and Beverly, but this time I get to pick your brain and ask you tons of questions. Ooh, I hope I sound semi-intelligent with your questions. You have some really good questions. (laughs) Well, I try. (laughs) So we're going to start with a quick round of sort of easy questions, softball questions for you. And then we'll move into the nitty-gritty self-defense conversation. Are you ready? Softball, because that's my favorite sport, or that was just a general term? That was just a general <laughs> term, and then I thought, I oh, my gosh, I could ask you a question about your sports. <laughs> Either way, we're good to go. Okay. All right. So what is your favorite place in the world? Oh, gosh. Anywhere really hot, like... New Mexico or where the heat is just radiant. I, I, I love the heat. So no specific place. It just depends on who I'm there with. So training with you guys or down in Vegas, visiting my little sister, just wherever the great company is. That's my favorite spot. Cool. Where's the hottest place you've ever been? Several years ago, after my father had died, we promised to take his ashes back to his hometown. And it's a place called Hachita, New Mexico, which is about three miles off the border of Mexico. And it's just, it's probably one of the worst places anybody would want to go. It looks exactly like a Mexican desert 
with nothing there but mesquite trees and some sprawling little pieces of vegetation and it was dry arid hot wind and the hot sun so gosh it was probably it was had to be over 100 i'm not sure but i loved it i also love sitting in hot cars in the summertime so that's just that's me <laughs> <laughs> oh my well that's different <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of us on this planet. I know a couple other ladies that enjoy that. I can relate to that because growing up in Oklahoma every summer was 100 degrees plus. And recently, I actually invested in an infrared sauna. And the idea is that it doesn't actually have to be warm temperature when you use it because it heats you up from the inside out. But it's been so cold up here in Coyoteville this winter that I like to cook it up to you know, 90 to 100 degrees before I get in. And then by the time I'm oh. done, it's up to like 125. <laughs> oh, that sounds so great. Oh, like a microwave cooks you from the inside out. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what is the favorite animal in your life, favorite pet that you've had? Uh, all of my pets have been dogs. And, uh, of course, all of them are the best dogs ever. Uh, my favorite one I've had, well, I can't say favorite. The one that was the most significant was a Australian Shepherd mix that uh, was a good dog. It was a female dog. And we had already had uh, a Malamute, a Husky Malamute mix. And my best friend, Kelly, her daughter had brought home this little puppy and they already had two dogs. And she said, you want another dog? And I said, no, I don't. One is good. And she goes, well, I really want to give you this dog. And, and of course, I really did not want another dog. And she was in the middle of, of battling her cancer at the time. And she would have to pass through my small town to go to her treatments. So she goes, well, we have to go to Salt Lake for a weekend. And could you babysit. And if you're not allergic and you like the dog, I'd like you to have him. Well, the dog spent the weekend and some dogs I'm allergic to, some I'm not. Worked out fine. And, you know, she just really wanted to give me this gift. And so I had to say yes. And uh, it was a good gift. I mean, it lasted well after she was gone. And the dog was, it just helped me through a lot. We had to put her down last year. So still tender. She lasted for 15 years. Oh, wow. And what was her name? Bushi, as in Bushido. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's awesome. In what way did she help you get through the loss of your friend? Just, uh, she was such a well-behaved dog. Um, just mellow, knowing that it was the last gift. And that, you know, the last gift that she had given me and whatever your belief systems are. Um, yeah, we all know that, you know, those that pass are here with us, but sometimes signs are a little bit more stronger than other times. And just, you know, I figured some of the times it was more than just Kelly here with me or more than just the dog here with me. So. Oh, that's wonderful. <sighs> so what's your favorite self-care practice? I've heard you ask this to other people. I thought, hmm, what do I do? What do I do? You know, I have a, a lady here who I call my body worker. She does massages, but it's definitely not like 
a spa massage. It's deep tissue combination of different things that she learned. So I go to her to keep me mobile, keep some parts of myself in place where they need to be, muscles and stuff. The other one is just vegging out in front of the television, watching a bunch of DVR items. I have to set a time limit. I could watch all day, but just revisiting childhood by watching old TV series I record. Any favorite one? Yeah, actually, The Wild Wild West, the original TV series, is one that I watch at least one or two episodes actually every day. So it's just, it's that was my favorite one growing up, like in kindergarten, first, second grade, and my alter ego, my idol. So <laughs> silly, some of the stuff, I, you know, I try to watch it to see, oh, I wonder if I remember this episode. And holy cow, some of them were pretty... Uh, interesting (laughs) now that I'm an adult but it's fun I love it yeah that was a great a great series I think that is one of the ones that my husband actually watched a lot of it's not one that I really watched a lot of because I think when I was younger I I did see a couple episodes and to me it was just silly and I was much more of an alias Smith and Jones kind of a girl oh I was a good one too yeah yep what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Oh, my goodness. I was already married by the time I was in my 20s. Um, and it depends on which time of my life I would draw from. I think the advice I would give is that's kind of rough because it depends on the character. You know, don't give a shit about what other people think. But it's so hard when you're young. Um, Become independent, you know, create your own financial security or financial comfort. Know how to do your own finances and pay for your own stuff and be your own individual person. And before you decide to hook up with somebody, be able to stand on your own two feet in that way. And then um, I guess the biggest one is that it's just Nothing is permanent and everything takes work. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say what I would have wanted somebody to tell me, I guess. Seriously, I don't, I don't have a lot of financial knowledge. My husband takes care of all that stuff and I'm good with it. But now that you get older and things start happening, it's like, hmm, I'm going to have to learn a whole bunch of stuff. You know, sometime eventually maybe that I don't want to have to learn and it's going to be not in the best of circumstances. But if I had learned earlier, then I'd be a little bit more uh, comfortable with it. Yeah, that's really solid advice. And I think that a lot of us don't really grow up thinking or understanding much about how to manage money. And that's how a lot of us get into trouble financially when we're younger, because we don't quite get the connection between what's coming in and not necessarily what needs to go out right now, but things that are coming in the future. So having a reserve and having some emergency funds. So for those unexpected things, and then just even the idea that like just because it's in your account, it doesn't mean you should be spending it. Yeah. And just how the whole credit system works and all that stuff. It's just things that they do cover in school. I mean, obviously we had those classes in school, but unless you're prepared to realize that, hey, dude, you're going to be an adult someday. You need to know this stuff. I mean, we hear those words, 
but it also might have something to do with the environment you grew up in. Um, I was the youngest of five, and so I never had to worry about anything. I, my parents were in a much better position with me because there's a big dis- distance time-wise between me and my siblings that they took care of everything. I didn't have to, hey, I need 20 bucks to go do this. Okay, here you go. Whereas my siblings didn't have that. So I didn't really have to struggle for anything. And then again, my best friend, Kelly, she had to work her butt off for everything. I mean, if she needed a new pair of shoes for basketball, she had to work to get her own shoes. Whereas she had a completely different viewpoint just from having to survive. So I think it's, it's, you know, has to do with your, your environment and what your parents know to teach you or not. What is the most common piece of advice that you give the students that you work with? Because they're high school age, right? Yes, they are. I deal with freshmen through senior high school kids. I love them all. They're, they're so fun. To go out of Wells, to leave. I live in a small town, as, as you explained, very small. Um, the school I work in is a combined school, which means that it's a uh, kindergarten through 12th grade school. Elementary is at one end of the block, and the high school is at the other end of the block. There's probably 120 kids from ninth through 12th grade total. And so I, I get, we have a lot of good conversations because they're small classes. And I tell them to go out, go out into the world, go somewhere besides here and experience life because you'll run into diversity that you don't get here. Um, meet people that you're not going to have a chance to meet here. Just go, go out and live your life away from this spot. Go explore other spots. That's great. That is very potent advice. And I, that's advice I can also relate to because I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma and it sort of felt big because there was a university there. But when university was not in session, I was just a little town on the prairie. It is. It, it, you know, and the people I've met by, you know, stepping out the door and, and taking that scary first step to, to go meet these people to train with, to learn stuff I thought I wanted to know at the time. Gosh, I've met so you know, we met that training. I've met so many amazing people from all over the world doing the stuff I do. And it's kind of, to me, I just, that's one of my, it's like, wow, me, nobody from nowhere. And the people and the friends I have all over the place. It's just, it's really cool. Humans are great and not, but great. (laughs) (laughs) And it's much easier to keep in touch with people nowadays because we have the internet and we have the Facebook and stuff like that. So when you do meet people, who live far, far away, you can still stay in touch, which we didn't used to have 20 years ago. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yep. No more old fashioned letters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I would like to hear your martial arts origin story. How I got started in it? Yep. What, uh, what prompted you to get into it in the first place? And what did you think you were doing when you did? And how did that journey unfold? Okay. Well, I was in my senior year of high school, and it was not a very good year for me. I was was not in a good place at all. I had no plans for the future. Um, doing some things that really messed with my my head, not chemical wise, just emotional wise. And uh, one of my friends, Frida, signed up for a karate class through the local college, 
And she said, hey, you know, I want to do karate so I could learn how to defend myself when I go off to, to school, to college. Come do this with me. And uh, I thought, well, okay, that's, it'll give me some place to go for several hours a week to get away from myself and do something. And so uh, we signed up and attended the first class. And, of course, we had no idea, even, even watching television with the shows I watched and, and the actions there. But I had no idea what karate is and other than fighting. I was never a Bruce Lee fan or anything. And uh, the first class, I was not necessarily hooked on the martial arts itself, but the atmosphere and the physical... I don't want to say torture, but the physical output of of doing something painful and physical gave me a release for the emotional stuff I was going through. I mean, sitting in Seiza on, it was a nice wood floors at that time, but sitting on Seiza on the floor for at least 45 minutes was, you know, painful. The punching and blocking and kicking each other practice was painful. All of it hurt like hell and it felt good. <laughs> if that sounds odd, but it, it was definitely a release. It, it helped me because the pain I was going through was real pain, but there was no physical cause for it. And so it helped me release that. And then it just kind of eventually rolled over into enjoying the regiment of the, of the physical workout. And I kept going back. Of course, the semester ended. And I was also involved in, in coaching Little League softball and playing women's amateur softball at the time so between the three I had to give up something so my martial arts got put on the back burner and life happened and met my my husband got married moved away and came back and started back in the martial arts so it's been my grounding point every time I've needed to go back to just being grounded you know it takes me back to that first time of some place to go that was where I belonged and and it gave me it gave me not necessarily direction but a grounding that's hard to explain if you don't if you don't have that that grounding in fact when our little town had a major earthquake gosh it was 2007 i believe and it was it was like a 6.0 lasted for 45 seconds it was it was fun in a terrifying way <laughs> because there's no big building so nothing's going to like fall on your head but I was pretty shaken up that I did not know about but little things would just kind of set me off and you feel that flashback stuff and a colleague of mine who had also trained in the same martial arts that I did had his own school and so I caught up with him and said I need to come and work out with you guys I just need I just need to be in that atmosphere and so it, it kind of grounded me after the earthquake and so it's just been one of those places that I go that's, you'd say home, but it's it's a home of some sort. Yeah. Well, I can, yeah, I can understand that because I have felt that way in the martial arts school and also in the CrossFit boxes, just that it's a community where I just feel like I fit. Yep. And I haven't really practiced, you know, all the, all out in the traditional arts or any arts really for God, forever. I do go over to uh, the closest town we have is 50 miles, as you said, um, and there's a jujitsu school there. I'm not not a fan of jujitsu, but I just don't want a traditional arch shoved down my throat. Um, but I go there specifically because of the atmosphere. I mean, if I'm in town, I just want to hang out. I just go sit in their classes and just hang out because that's just it's it's 
I don't know, it makes me feel good. I, I feel alive and whole and welcomed. And I go train there as well. It's fun to roll with, with people, but it's not my goal. I don't care for rank or any. I just go have fun. Well, that's great. Can you speak a little bit to what it was like to run your own school and how that was different from just being a student or just dropping in somewhere for fun? Yeah. Well, when I got to uh, Brown Belt, as you said, um, it started with my husband. He goes, hey, you know, you should open a school over here. I go, I don't want to teach. I don't want to teach. And then when I got to the rank, my instructor said, hey, you should open a school over, you know, where you live. I go, I couldn't tell him no, because, you know, it was part of the requirement. If, if you, you had to teach anyway as a brown belt. And I thought, well, fine. <laughs> um, I was lifting weights at this little place. There was an old gas station this guy had converted into kind of a gym. And he had a little area sectioned off for little kids to to be blocked away from the weights and an open space for people to do aerobics. And my uh, friends, my other friends of, you know, mothers, they had little kids. So we, I had a group of, a small group of people we'd hang out with, with our kids. We'd go down there and lift weights. And Lonnie said, you know, ask that guy if he'd be willing to rent his space for free to teach. (laughs) And so I approached this man. Now I didn't want to teach. And so as I'm talking to him, so, hey, Kevin, and I'm shaking my head back and forth in the no, you know, in a no fashion. So you would not want to rent this place out for me to teach karate out of, would you? I'm shaking my head no this whole time because <laughs> I don't want to teach. <laughs> and he sat there and he thought, and he goes, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'm thinking, no, <laughs> fine. Okay. So then uh, he said it'd be fine. He would rent, he would do that. So I came back and told my husband, well, he said he'd, he'd rent the place out to us if I wanted to teach. He goes, oh, good. How much? I go, well, I don't know. I didn't, details. I didn't, details. I didn't get the, I said, I don't know. Didn't ask. So then I had to go back and ask how much. And the price he quoted was $100 a month. And so that was something we could afford. This was before I was working at the high school. And so lo and behold, October of 89, I was, held a demo and signups and uh, had 10 people sign up, had my uh, exit plan in place. When I was training, our, our training sessions were two and a half to three hours long and hard. And there was no hand coverings for sparring and leg coverings for kicks, no mats on the floor. So it was hard. And I saw people come and go all the time. So that was my exit plan. Just, you know, two and a half hours, hard, hard training. They'll all quit. I could say, "Hmm, I tried. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I had a a group. One person who signed up, Steve, was one of the first 10 that signed up. And uh, he was was older than I was, had been in the military, was kind of interested in doing something to work out. He, He lifted weights and stuff. And he signed up. And he stayed with me until the very bitter end when I turned in my resignation. He was there the whole time. But a month later, another gentleman who uh, stayed with me forever signed up. And a couple months later, there was a third one. So those, those three were my, my core three people, all guys. I think Sean was about my age, but the other two were older and military. And they, they told me often that if I wasn't giving them quality, training and quality 
information that they wouldn't be sticking around. But they, they were there, like I said, when I turned in my resignation. They got their black belts under me, actually. But yeah, I, I, tried, I tried like heck to get everybody to quit by working too hard, but people kept coming in. And, and <laughs> eventually it just it evolved into where I've truly enjoyed teaching. Just the little details that when I go to other people's schools that are traditional and I'm watching them miss details on pointing little things out in a certain way or explaining it in a certain way that whatever their profession is, they can understand where it's coming from, you know, using those kind of examples. And that's, uh, I do enjoy it. I, I'm, I'm shocked every time I think about it, how much I do enjoy it. And right now all I do is seminars and I think it'd be kind of nice to get back into the routine of always teaching, but I know that's not where I'm at right now. I just love like the great big universe conspiring to get you into teaching, kind of kicking and screaming and full of resistance. (laughs) (laughs) True statement. Yep. The universe knows, man. Yep. And then your discovery that, hey, like I actually kind of like this and holy cow, I'm actually kind of good at it. I love that. And I think the fact that those three guys stuck with you and gave you such clear feedback about the quality of what you were doing is just awesome. Yeah, they were my biggest supporters. It's it's they're good guys. I mean, it's you know, we've all gone our our separate ways and I run into them every once in a while, even in a small town, but not too often, but every once in a while and it's just, you know, it's that if I needed anything on you know, right now, boom, they're going to be right there. Even though we haven't spoken, you know, in depth for years. It's just it's that kind of they're my, they're my brothers. They're they got me to where I'm at. Yeah, that's wonderful. So at what point did you sort of migrate towards self-defense and away from martial arts? And what prompted that? Right. Um, about 18, 19 years into the arts, you know, teaching and all that stuff, I had my own experience with an assault. And it was somebody I trusted, like it most often is. and so. When that happened, I was already kind of questioning, well, throughout, and I I think you've mentioned this a few times, throughout the whole time, I would question, what are these, how do I know which one of these techniques I will need in in a self-defense situation? And it was always, ah, you'll just know. And like usual, I guess, or, or more common than not, my assault was not one in which a physical technique would have handled it. Because, well, it could have if it gotten to the physical part, but my voice would have, would have stopped things like right off the bat. Rather than saying, you know, please don't do this. I don't want to do this. It's painful. Please don't, you know, could you stop? I don't want to. To actually assert my voice and stand up for myself verbally in a way that would have just stopped the whole event. Um, and so that's not ever anything that the regimented martial arts teach. I mean, we ki all the time, but it's only while we're doing our physical stuff. We never get to, you know, practice, so to speak, asserting ourselves verbally or aggressively to somebody who's approaching us or somebody who's, you know, in our space that we don't want in the space. And so, no, I, I, I had my own assault. And at that moment, I just, I stepped back and that's when I turned in my resignation. I, I didn't know how to quit the martial art, the 
the specific system. It wasn't the martial arts. It was the instructor and the specific system because he was not really keen on people quitting, <laughs> if, if you uh, understand. Um, leaving the school was not going to be good, so I kind of had to look over my watch my back for retaliation because the instructor was just that kind of a guy. We're the only school and then, you know, anybody that's not us is, is enemies and stuff like that. So for me to walk away was kind of scary for my safety, but it was something I had to do. Um, I just kind of did nothing. Martial arts did not help me in my personal defense and I was just kind of lost. I don't want to say I, I curled up in the corner for a couple of years because I sort of did martial arts wise, but you know, life went on. Realized I needed to get away for a while and applied for a work-study program at a Buddhist monastery. Did the whole Kung Fu thing. <laughs> That's cool. So I uh, ended up at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You know, where it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting, it was actually, it was the first time I had ever traveled anywhere by myself. Had to make my own arrangements to get from from the airport to Albuquerque, of course, on the airplane, but from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, just all completely on my own. I had never done that ever in my life. We traveled, but I was just, okay, we're going to leave here, you know, at this time, and we'll be to that point at that time. And I just kind of went with plans that were made. And so this, that was, that was a big step. And uh, that was in 19, gosh, when was that? 2002. And so uh, got there and they were in the middle of a transition as well, the, the Zen Center itself. Um, and so why are you here? And go on work study. And they would ask, are you here for Ongo? And an Ongo is a month long silent retreat. And so I, said, no, I'm here for work study. And no, but they didn't really quite know I was, why I was there. And I knew I was there strictly for work study, but there was something bigger than that that I didn't understand why I had to, I had to go somewhere. And this is where I ended up. And again, you know, the universe thing. Why it was an emotional time as well, because I didn't know why I was, I did not know why I had to be somewhere else. And I was at a place I had no idea about. I was comfortable with the Zen part because, you know, the art I studied was Japanese-based, and we did meditation, but it was a silent retreat. I could not ask questions. People would not answer me. And so, uh, yeah, that part was rough. <laughs> I often would get in trouble, chewed out, so to speak, by people running the uh, Ongo retreat because I would be too noisy, like asking questions and stuff. It was, it was humorous in one sense, now that I'm past that, but... I stayed there for three weeks, working, you know, doing dishes, learning the meditative practices and things like that. And when I first showed up there, I always thought that I didn't, I wouldn't mind if I never talked to anybody again or lost the ability to speak because I really didn't like talking to people. But after that experience, I realized how much I, I do enjoy people's company and talking with them. So that was, that was an eye-opener, just things you discover. And uh, I returned again for the next summer. And that's the summer that I realized I wanted to teach women personal defense, although I wasn't sure what I needed to do so. Physical skills I had, 
but there was other stuff they needed to learn that I needed to know to be able to teach. And that's, that's kind of where it went from there to kind of find some place, somebody to learn from. Although I did not know what it was I needed to learn. So how did you end up then in New York? Okay. So that second summer I was done there, came back, went back to my routine. I was coaching high school softball at the time and living where I live, we travel on buses for miles for hours to get to where we're playing. And we were scheduled to play across the state. Um, I'm on one end of Nevada and we were scheduled to play on the other northeast end so it's 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 not anywhere near vegas it's up northeastern nevada but we were scheduled to play on the western side of nevada and i just happened to wander through a grocery store with a group of girls and in the magazine section there was a magazine that was printed i think only three times and the title of the magazine was self-defense for women and so uh of course i had to pick it up (laughs) because that was like a major sign right (laughs) And in it was an advertisement to become certified as a self-defense instructor through an organization in which Phil Messina had been a part of. And so uh, I signed up and headed across the country to learn from this guy. And he started filling in the blanks of the stuff that I was missing uh, about the fear, about flashbacks and how you can tell somebody's doing that. And making all that your decision tree and all these choices whittled down to a decision stick. And it was with Phil was the first person I heard about the golden move. He didn't call it the golden move the way Rory does, but same thing, you know, better your position, worsen their position as far as, you know, the physical self-defense part. And so, uh, yeah, I returned back to him as often as I could to learn from Phil. He, is a retired New York police officer that worked when New York was in a really bad state. He actually did the decoy, volunteered for the decoy unit when they were trying to clean up the streets. And so he has violence professional. I mean, he's got the scars and the trauma and, and the stories as well, but he's down to earth, matter of fact, and this is going to work and here's what you need to do to make it work. So that's where I, that's where how I met Phil by again, complete fluke. And then, like you said, you know, he recommended, hey, you should read this book. And so that's, that's how I got to that point. And Rory has just added more detail to the stuff that Phil had started, started me learning about. Yeah, it's all been haphazard. It just kind of falls into place the way it needs to. I love that it all started with a limited edition magazine, basically, that you just happened to see in a store as you were traveling that, that turned out to be the hook, you know, it was like the signpost that said, go over here. (laughs) And the fallout from that has been amazing. Yep. It's, it is, it's just, you know, um, the universe truly is an amazing things happen as it is however it's supposed to happen. It's like, it's one of the chants that we do at the uh, Zen center. It's obviously it's a long chant because it's a, Buddhist monastery, they're all long chants, <laughs> but um, talks about two arrow points meeting in midair and how just things happen, but sometimes they're just so precise out of the blue, but yet so precise. And that's, it's just, it is, it's pretty, it's like, it's pretty cool. And so after you read the, the book, Rory's book, The Meditations on Violence, 
how long was it before you actually got to train with him? So I think I read the book around June of 2010. I was rereading it when I was going off to a wilderness fast, kind of like a vision quest through the Zen Center in mountains in, in Santa Fe. And I realized that I, I really needed to co- make contact with him. So I, I kind of emailed him as I was journeying to New Mexico and saying, hey, I really liked your stuff. Can I use it when I'm teaching my self-defense? And uh, of course, he writes back. He's great at answering. He goes, absolutely, use it. And if I'm in your vicinity, I'll let you know and you can come train. So uh, that October, the same year, October 2010, he was in Billings, Montana, which is only a 12-hour drive. (laughs) 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 And it happened to fall on Nevada's. Nevada has, we have Nevada Day, which is the day our state was admitted into the union, and we have it as a state holiday. And so we don't have school on that day. And it happened to fall on that weekend. So I had, I had the weekend to be able to travel up to go train with him without missing work. And so I zipped up to Billings, did an eight hour Saturday self-defense at a gym there and uh, had to leave right after this training was over to head back home because it was also Halloween weekend. And I wanted to make it back home in order to, uh, go out with my grandson for his first actual walking for trick-or-treating, you know, he was three years old. So yeah, I left right after training, drove halfway on Saturday night to come, come home and finish the rest of the drive on Sunday and made it back to go, go with my son and grandson now trick-or-treating. So, but yeah, it was just a really quick trip, eight hours. And yeah, he was, somebody I would train with, you know, because you have to test drive these people. Do I really want, you know, is this what I'm looking for? And yeah, he was, he's the real deal. So whenever he's in the region, I go train with him. I, I love that you said that because it, it really is true. There are so many possible people that you can work with, but you really don't know whether or not they are legit and you don't know whether or not their style is going to match you. And you don't know whether or not they're material, their program, their approach is going to be in alignment with you unless you actually go train with them once. And I love that you did that and were able to have eight hours. I like the the term of the test drive. That's pretty cool. And it sounds as though you had the same kind of response that I did the first time I got to train with Rory, which was just like, oh yeah, yes, very matter of fact, very useful, very pragmatic. Tons of insight, absolutely fits in with where I want to go. And holy cow, so many things I've never even thought of. Yeah. And he's approachable. He doesn't, you know, my, my instructor was, was uh, there was a lot of ego there. There's a lot of ego in all places, but he was standoffish. I mean, he knew his stuff. And if you weren't good enough to hear it, then he wasn't going to tell you, right? But Rory, the people I've met since the self-defense journey started, all of them have been down to earth. They know their stuff, but they're not arrogant about it. And even if they come off as a little bit arrogant, it's just, it's their, it's not their character. It's just their persona, but they're, all of them answer emails, answer questions, are approachable. You don't sound dumb when you say, I don't understand what you're saying. They can explain it. I mean, it's good guys, good people. 
Yeah. Those exact qualities are why I really love working with Tony Blower and why when I first got the chance to work with Tim Larkin, I had the same experiences. It's like, oh yeah, same kind of person. So I totally get that. Yeah. What do you think the difference is between martial arts and self-defense? And what are the top issues for the women that come to your seminars? The difference between self-defense and martial arts, I think, is different for males than it is females. When I was teaching the martial arts, I could never get a female to stay on the floor. They would come in and maybe take a class or watch a class. And I would ask, Are you, you know, do you want to join? And they would say, well, no, there's nobody, no other, there's no other girls on the floor. I was running the training, but they didn't see me in that light for whatever reason. But again, we were hard, you know, full contact, you know, I don't know what it would be, but um, I think the difference is all the, uh, what it's alpha skills, is that what we're referring to them as? The being able to to speak up for yourself, knowing that those boundaries should be set. With my assault, if I would have listened to that, that voice saying, maybe you better say something now, this is not right, you know, something's... Something doesn't feel right. I don't know what's wrong, but it's not right. And listening to that intuition and the, gosh, understanding the fear and, this, and the, the adrenaline spike. You spoke recently on one of your podcasts about learning about this adrenaline spike and how it differs for us. That would have been huge to know several years ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, just learning the little nuances of of being female in training as opposed to male in training, just little nuances. Obviously, my, my instructor was male, so teaching the little nuances, how could he know the differences, the different items for us as females? And he didn't, so he didn't teach it because he didn't know it. And he was kind of, yeah, he would have taught it. I don't think, he, would, he wasn't open to learning female stuff either. I would try to bring up stuff, you know, certain times of the month and how things change, and it just he wasn't open to hearing it. So uh, part of the difference between martial arts and self-defense is absolutely the little, the alpha skills, the listening to your intuition, the training of us females to be able to stand up for ourselves in more than just the physical realm. You know, I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yes, it, it definitely does. And I think what you've hit on are a couple of really important points. I mean, one is that Martial arts is not just about the physical part, you know, for men or for women. It's not just about the physical part. And having those skills to de-escalate or to change the dynamics of a situation through your behavior and being able to set a boundary and all of that kind of thing, that is not stuff that typically gets taught in martial arts classes because they're, they're more sport-focused. So I think that's one thing that you hit on that's really important. But the other one, well, actually, it's it's like the two sides of the same coin is that women don't get attacked the same way that men do. And I think that male instructors teach differently than the female instructors that I've run across for sure. So I think that all of those things that you touched on are really important. And it's, it's really cool when you find a male instructor who understands that he, yeah, I don't know this part of it, but here's some references. So 
it's great when they acknowledge that they don't know. They, they can't know. They don't have this body to live through. And so when they're able to admit that, that's just, uh, that gives them so much more credentials. Yeah. So what are the top issues for the women who come to your seminars? A lot of them, I think it's the same or similar to what most, you know, they're afraid of the, uh, the sexual assaults. I've got a few people that have come in wanting to know how to defend in a domestic violence situation. And, and we talk about that because it's, it's, it's different than the regular, you know, it's, it's a different aspect of defending because it's, you know, to leave sometimes is not an option. It's just not going to work. And so domestic violence and uh, the sexual assault are the biggest concerns. Yeah, the domestic violence aspect is is tricky because, as you said, sometimes leaving is not an option. And also, emotionally, it is different to be dealing with somebody who you have an emotional bond with as opposed to a stranger or somebody that you've just known casually. And it's something that is similar to what happens when women come and they learn something cool in class and they want to go home and practice it with their husband or their boyfriend and it doesn't work. You know, they get flattened basically and they come back and they say it didn't work. And and when you say, well, were you prepared to gouge his eye out or were you prepared to knock him unconscious or debilitate him or possibly kill him? And they're like, no, I mean, that's my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So it's a, a much different conversation, although similar. What uh, What would be your biggest piece of advice for women in those domestic situations or the intimate partner violence situations? That's a tough one because you know everybody's. None of them are the same. But we're you know that emotional attachment, and depending on the. Uh, the duration of where you are at in that specific relationship. I mean, if you're just starting out and it's, you know, obviously he's hit you once or whatever the, the, it's not always male on female, you know, it's intimate partner, no matter what the first time your intimate partner does something. And of course they beg that they're not going to do it again. And it happens again. It's, it is still shocking. And it's, this is somebody you love and trust. And now they're violating that. Do you, do you really want to leave? And it's hard to leave. Like there's some circumstances you're you're not able to. And then there's I've been I've been doing a lot of thinking on this unconditional love statement that I've kind of seen throughout the internet. You know, unconditional love means this. And how do we not know that that person who's being abused they think you know I love him unconditionally. So this is part of those conditions of no matter what. I don't know. It's it's such it's I know it's I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough in the domestic violence realm to be able to give a lot of advice to the ladies. I could refer them to the, you know, the shelters and people to talk to, and I could have an ear for them to, to talk to. But at some point, you know, it's like, you know, you got to do something. And if you're not going to do anything, but, but complain and not take action, then I don't know what I can do for you. You know? Yes. I, I understand that. And, and I think that sometimes when women are slippery slope, yeah, when they're in a situation where they can't exit, either because there's kids or because financially they, they're being controlled and other things, then 
it's it's like what uh, the folks in violence dynamics talk to about like, what are your options in a situation and one of them is just enduring for a period of time until you can get to a, a place where you can do something and the other is reaching that decision point where you're like okay I'm I can't endure this anymore if I do I'm going to die or worse you know one of my children is going to be injured or something like that and then figuring out what is the plan of action to get out? And that's where I think that working with a self-defense coach can be really helpful because it's in that getting out process that often the physical danger really increases. And so having the confidence or at least the awareness that I'm not totally helpless. If I make this decision, the violence may escalate, but I want to be prepared so I think that's one one area where working with a self-defense coach could be really helpful. But it sounds like you are sort of in the same frame of mind as I am, which is that it's really hard to work with women in that situation in a group environment. It's much better when it's one-on-one custom sort of solo coaching. Oh, yeah. That's a good point that you brought up as well, learning with a, a self-defense coach. They know it might escalate the obvious violence, but you could, if you're, I don't want to say if you're really into the self-defense, but if you're a well-trained in the self-defense aspect, you can teach them the awareness habits, you know, the like the left of bang stuff and, and looking for these specific pre-incident indicators to know how to keep an eye out for potential danger from this specific person and, you know, tactics of that sort. Whereas, you know, it could go physical and learning that kind of stuff is great, but also learning all the little ticks and, and indicators to show that, oh man, you know, that, that car is parked weird and I don't know what that car is or what is this thing hanging from underneath my car, but to be able to, to span their area and move through their world with, uh, the ability and knowledge to to be aware of not necessarily what to look for, but how to see things that are not quite right. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And it, it just is making me think of when the abuse has been going on for quite a while there, it becomes kind of patterned and ritualized sometimes. And so those, those warning signs are definitely recognizable. Like women figure that out really quickly, but also sometimes it's, abusers can be very innovative in things that they do to try to control their partner. And so I think one of the most powerful things for women in this situation is to start to learn to trust that bad feeling again. Yes. Oh, yes. So when there is something that feels a little off, whether it's like, gosh, my phone is acting a little bit funny today, or like you said, like that car has been parked across from the house all day you know, to not dismiss those warning signs. And, and I think that's a really important thing because that can, that can help to head off or at least to recognize that there is something else going on. So I want to dig into a couple more things with you before we wrap up. So what are the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about personal protection or personal safety that you encounter? Uh. There's an email that has gone on forever that I despise with all my being. And it's that like nine things that rapists look for 
you know, taken from a criminal in the prison. They say, this is what we look for. Uh, women with long hair, and if you get thrown in a trunk, poke out the taillights and stupid shit, you know, the elbow is the strongest. Not that all of them are wrong, but it's all in context, you know. <laughs> uh, when I was teaching at the college, I would make my students research that, that specific email. So you research all of these and you tell me what you find out and not to believe everything you read about keeping yourself safe. I'm in the process now of, I went through and printed off self-defense articles from the internet, different things to keep yourself safe. You know, three self-defense moves for every, every woman should know, you know, the four best self-defense movements, a whole bunch of them. I printed it off and I'm comparing on what they have put together and stuff like that. A lot of the myths keep perpetuating. I think um, I think the biggest one is that if you just hit them correctly and strongly in the right spot, it's going to drop them and then you can get away as opposed to, you know, in reading the Tim Larkin book that we have to read for certification when violence is the answer, you know, you need to pretty much do the damage to make sure they're not going to, that you're inflicting enough injury that they're not going to continue their attack so you know the magic moves you know the three or four important moves that you need to know for defending i think that's a big myth and then there's the the dependency based self-defense like the pepper spray or the keys between your fingers and and uh, the loud personal alarms not that they're bad but you can't depend on them only they're just like a, a kind of like a part of the whole situation the whole they're part of the whole enchilada so to speak of defending them yeah you can have your pepper spray and spray the heck out of them and then you do something to incapacitate them as well in order to get safe if it goes to the physical part so this the personal alarms that are supposed to be really loud and bring attention or drop people to you to help you know that's just another little a tool but you have to be able to do stuff yourself as well it's just you are it i mean you're the one in that in that in the middle of the chaos you have to be able to be your best defense yeah amen to that so the tools the best self-defense moves they're a myth the tools are not necessarily a myth but they're not all encompassing and that i guess the biggest one is you know it'll never happen to me oh because yes you know Chances are it might not, but if it does, it's like swimming. I mean, we've all, you know, changing your own tire, checking your own oil, these little things that first aid. I mean, if you know how to, more people are getting trained in CPR and AED and stuff like that because it's, it saves lives. Self-defense is the same thing. Tony says that all the time. I like his, his analogy of that, you know, it's just like keeping yourself safe in all aspects. Yeah. So what are some of the must-know concepts, strategies, or tools that you think that women need to have in order to feel and be safe? Oh, my goodness. I would like to say carry yourself with confidence. But I think that's um, not what's overused, but move through the world like you know you belong there. And pay attention to when you're moving through the world like, you, like you're a part of it then you can see things happening, you know, the, those pre-incident indicators, the, hmm, there's something up the block that doesn't look quite right. Maybe I'll just go this way instead. Or, you know, my gut feeling tells me that 
going to that building right now is not a good idea or looking into a window and seeing in, in a restaurant maybe and you're seeing that there's you know a chaos happening in there don't go in there so moving through the world as if you're paying attention to things happening around you i think that's the biggest thing is, is because that keeps you safe you use the tools around you the reflections the uh, the atmosphere and it all that gives your intuition the uh, information it needs to help keep you safe. Oh, yeah, I love that. That's very simple, but profound at the same time. That's great. Well, I have one more question and then we will wrap it up. All right. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Oh, to do things that, that you are uncomfortable doing if you don't think you read well you know pick up a book start with any book start with a graphic novel and practice reading if you don't think you're you know maybe you went through school struggling about reading and you're just insecure about it and so it's something you avoid like me and numbers <laughs> pick up something and start reading even if it's you know the cereal box or actually read the directions of whatever you're making for dinner and practice with the little things that make you uncomfortable. I swim every morning. It's not about, you know, I fought and fought. I didn't, I don't like the water. I don't want to go swimming. No, no, no. And then I thought, you know, it'd be a good change of pace and it's supposed to be good for you. So I went and tried it. And um, I realized I wasn't, didn't like the water. It was that I was afraid of the water. And so the more often I did it, the calmer I got while I was in the water. And so, you know, that was just going out and jumping in, not necessarily jumping into the deep end. No, I did not. Just going in and doing something that I thought I didn't like. And I realized it was a fear. So do things that you don't think you're, you don't feel comfortable doing. If you don't feel comfortable reading, start reading. You learn a lot of information. If you don't feel comfortable in the water, you know, start going to the pool and maybe walking the pool. If you don't feel comfortable, you know, doing something, then start small. Start with the small things and work towards some kind of comfort level with that. That'll really boost your courage because it takes a lot of courage to go out and do stuff on your own. You know, like first time I traveled on my own, I did not realize it was courage, but I, I do now just because of the experience. If there's something you want to go out there and do and you're not sure, oh, nobody's going to do it with me, go do it by yourself. Oh, I really want to see this movie, but nobody's going to go with me. Go by yourself. Try that new restaurant you've always wanted to try it. If nobody goes, do it by yourself. That'll, that'll get the boat rolling. Literally, I think all females, man, we all have so much courage and we just don't recognize that it's courage. I mean, we get through the month with a week out of the month feeling like shit and do what we need to do, that's courage. Yeah, I, I love that advice to just do it, start small. And I think you're right on target that just doing those kinds of things and giving yourself a chance to try it, you may surprise yourself and discover that you absolutely love it. Or you may just rule it out and say, nope, this is not for me, but you will have gained something by going through it. Anyway. Yeah, oh yeah. That, that's true too, you know, and the friends, that you, the friends that you meet while you're doing it turn out to be pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, like us. Totally. 
So before we go, can you let people know where they can find you? Because I'm sure there's going to be people that want to reach out and follow you and possibly come to some of your seminars if you hold them somewhere that they can get to. And I just want to make sure that they know how to locate you out in the big wide world. All right. I do have a website. It is Subtle Warrior Self-Defense. Subtle as in S-U-B-T-L-E, self-defense. I'm also on Instagram and there's a Facebook and all of it is Subtle Warrior. What caused you to choose that as the name, Subtle Warrior? Well, if you look up the definition of subtle, which I have, it's, it's very low key. I'm sure I don't have it like right here handy. So not like blatant and obvious. Yeah, delicate, um, subdued, fine, astute, keen, but very sharp. So, you know, wise, clever. And all the descriptions of subtle fit us as females in everything we do. And so we can, gosh, we can bear so much in our, in our hearts and souls and our emotions. And yet we, we got the broadest shoulders to carry so much and we're very much warriors. Yeah. Huh? Come on. You piss off a woman and holy cow, shit hits the fan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, that same female can be so delicate. So, so gentle with things at the same, you know, the contrast, but we're very, and, and we, like you said earlier, we can, see things sometimes that are you know happening as they're happening or before they happen so that's that's part of the subtle warrior when i was thinking for a name for my uh, self-defense i of course ruminated on it for quite a while and i worked in the library at that time and i kept shelving this book that said subtle knife it was a fiction book i don't read a lot of fiction but that word subtle just kept coming up and so that's that's it's kind of where I went towards because we're, we're very much warriors. We're so fierce as females. Oh my gosh. It's one of our greatest superpowers. We're so fierce, but we're so, I don't know, subtle. So you know what I love about that? Two things. One is you got whacked over the head with another not very subtle sign from the universe that that was what you should be paying attention to, <laughs> just like the magazine. The other piece is that I think that a lot of women get put off by self-defense programs because they think that it's all very aggressive and loud and fighting and screaming and yelling. And that may be an important piece, but that's not all there is. And we have so many more tools at our disposal that are way more subtle than that, that we can use. And so I just, I love that that is a part of your name. Yeah. You know, when I first picked it in, what, 2004, 2003, when this was all starting, I liked it. But the more I've learned about those other tools, the more it's like, holy cow, dang, I did good. (laughs) You did. You sure did. (laughs) Well, Lisa... Abbott, I have to say this has been a ton of fun. I am so glad that I finally got to get you one-on-one so I could ask you a bunch of questions and hear some of the really fascinating aspects of your journey because you have had an extraordinary journey. And I also get the sense that like that is all sort of preparation and that there's a lot more coming from you in the not-too-distant future. So Thank you so much for coming on the show and 
talking with me and sharing all that you have today. It's, it's been fun. It's always fun to speak with you. Uh, yeah, you know, I had no plans for any of this happening and it's just all falling into, into place very surprisingly and, and awesomely. I just, the people I've met and it's been great talking with you and it's been fun. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yep. Thank you too. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.